Good evening. How are you? You enjoying yourselves? Praise the Lord. So, we spend a considerable amount of time talking about foundations. And we, you're having a conference about the grace of God and the assurance that we have in, our, in regard to our salvation in Christ. It might seem odd to spend so much time on the foundations, but I believe that because we've laid those foundations down about what the reference point is, because we've laid the foundations down about that starting place of how I actually know, I think we can go to the text of God's Word now and truly understand and delight in, take pleasure in God's promises about His salvation. And it's really important for us to have spent time talking about those foundations in terms of how do I know what I know and what is the very foundation of truth? What's the rock that I have to stand on? Because what Scripture gives us in the revelation of God about who God is is so distinct from the religions of men and from the interpretations of men about what grace is. And what I mean by that is, we've mentioned this earlier, even religions that co-opt Christian language, they use words like Jesus. They speak Christianese. They talk about grace. They talk about faith. They talk about the cross. They talk about salvation. Even when those religions borrow our language and speak Christianese, they are not talking about the God that we're talking about or the grace that we're talking about. You see, there is a distinction, a chasm between what the world says about God, even, Christ, even religions that ape Christianity, and what the world says about grace, and what the Bible says about God and grace. And so that's where we're turning now. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's difficult when you have to manage like a conference and you know, a couple talks about grace and assurance and salvation because there's a temptation I think you have as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel to, like I said yesterday, just simply offload the dump truck and just sort of lay out all the proof texts. And you could do that. And, and I want to just say, you know, there's no avoiding at times proof texting and that's saying, here's the proof, here's the text. But proof texts need to be in context. And I think one of the best ways that we can do this tonight is talk about who God is according to Scripture in His sovereignty, in His rule of all things, in His guidance and His sovereignty over all things, the nature of man, his fallenness, his deadness in sin, when we talk about those things and then go to the discourses, the actual discourses where this is laid out in Scripture, we can have an assurance and an anchor that actually gives to us joy in tribulation, joy in persecution, and just plain old Christian joy and delight in worship of God. Because what Scripture tells us about grace is so different than the world and man-made religions give to us about what grace actually is. You often find that at times, right? When you talk to, say, the Roman Catholic and you're trying to give them the gospel or you're trying to talk to the Mormon and they're using your language. They're saying, no, I believe in the grace of God. I believe that grace is, what do they say, necessary. And that's one of those great distinctions about the grace of God that we're going to learn about tonight in Scripture and all man-made religion you see, most man-made religion won't have the audacity to say that grace is unnecessary. We've had that in history, that is there in history, that we can sort of pull ourselves up from our bootstraps, we have the strength in ourselves to sort of climb our, ways, our way to God, but not everyone is so bold to say that grace isn't necessary, right? Most man-made religion will say, of course grace is necessary, I know that I'm a, a wreck or I'm a mess, I know that I have sin, I know that God has to give me grace, 
but you know, I, it's sort of a cooperative thing. Like God gives grace and sort of that gets into me and I have to cooperate back and forth with God. So there's this movement of God in me. We call that what? Synergism, right? God gives grace. I cooperate. I come back. And so this is sort of a thing in tandem. God and I with this grace. Of course God has to give me grace. I need the grace. I'm a mess. People will admit that. They're not usually bold enough to say, I don't need God's grace. I can do it on my own. But the biblical definition of grace is far different from that. It is a grace that is truly unmerited. It is a grace upon dead people who can do nothing on their own, who cannot understand, who cannot see. They are deaf. They cannot walk towards God. They cannot climb towards God. All their righteousnesses are as filthy rags, God says at one point in history. It's a grace that is a powerful grace. Here's the thing. It's a grace that is a sufficient grace, not just necessary. It is sufficient to save. It is a powerful grace that saves and saves perfectly. And the foundation I've given to you is the very word of God. Build your life. Build your theology upon the rock of Jesus' word. God's word is the standard. God communicates effectively and clearly. Isn't it amazing that when people oftentimes want to debate these issues, they'll avoid the discourses that are just so clear. Don't want to talk about those things, right? They'll they'll avoid the discourses and they'll say, well, no, actually, I know it sounds like it's saying that. I know it sounds like Jesus is saying that the Father has chosen a people in Jesus Christ and that Jesus will never lose them or forsake them. I know that it sounds like that, but what you really need because you couldn't possibly understand it on your own, is you need the church to interpret that for you, to give you guidance and instruction to really understand what Jesus is saying. Or He's not saying that God has sovereignly chosen the people in Jesus Christ and that he saves them perfectly and he continues them to the end and he keeps them. He's not saying that. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to cooperate. You need to do all these things. But that doesn't appear to be what Jesus is saying. No, you can't possibly understand what Jesus is saying there. You need the church to tell you. You don't need authority to tell you. Isn't it amazing? We did some scripture today where the Lord Jesus actually challenges people on their man-made traditions. And he quotes them and their tradition and the word of God as though they should see the problem. God communicates clearly. And isn't it amazing? One more point on this. When people say that these discourses couldn't possibly be saying what they seem to be saying, what they so clearly say, they'll say, no, you need an interpreter for God. So I need a man to speak to me, to give me understanding. God can't communicate on his own clearly enough to his creatures so that they can understand. What pride. What amazing human pride to say that I have to have a creature interpret God for me to fully understand that God cannot communicate on his own to his creatures. Isn't it amazing? The pride, the human pride that's evident in that sort of a claim that you need human interpreters to really help you understand what God's saying because he's not really saying what he is saying there in that text. So there's two foundations I want to give to us right now to understand the grace of God. And number one, that is the sovereignty of God. We do a lot of evangelism at Apologia Church. We've tried from the very beginning as pastors to model for our people what it looks like to preach the gospel. So we've tried to lead our people into the public square, into conflict with the world. And so our church, praise God, I'm humbled to to be a part of it and to see it. God bless that work. And so we have a church body that is so active. They are always out in the public square, in the streets, preaching the gospel, handing out tracts in the tough places. And 
One of the things that we are in constant conflict with is religious groups who have a different version of God. So some tough ones are the Hebrew Israelites. Do you have a lot of those in Mississippi? No? Thank God. Um, they're, they're a tough group because they're just very, at times, vile and very aggressive but they have the Bible in their hands and they have a version of Jesus and they have a version of salvation. We spend a lot of time out on the streets with the Mormon who is using our language. And have you ever had that struggle where you're in a conversation with a Latter-day Saint and you're 10 minutes into the conversation and you're shaking your head going, man, I, I know something's wrong here, but it doesn't sound like there is because they're trained to use our language. They're saying Jesus. They're saying He's the Son of God. They're saying that Jesus died on a cross and that Jesus rose again. You're thinking to yourself, scratching your head, wondering, now I, I know something is really wrong here, but we're not getting to it because we need to define what we mean about God. What God gives, us to, gives, us, gives to us in His Word is so distinct. It is so different. I mean, even the claim of monotheism that God is the God above all, that He is the only God, is a claim that would have offended so many people surrounding Israel in those days, that God actually is the only God. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. He is only one God. He is the true God. There is only one God. He is from everlasting to everlasting, from eternity into eternity. Psalm 90, verse 2. The eternal God, forever ago and for forever. He's the only God. He's God alone in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is no other. Deuteronomy 4, 35 and 39. You can go on for days. The statements that God makes telling the world that He is the only God. Isaiah 43, 10. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me there is no God. God says, is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other God. I know not one. He is the only God. And that claim of monotheism runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It is consistent. There is only one true and living God. Only one God. That's what Scripture teaches. But here's the thing. It doesn't merely teach that God is the only God. It teaches that God is the sovereign God, the ruler over all things, from the smallest details to the largest details, from the macro to the micro. Everything is in God's hands. I mean, one of the most beautiful things that I absolutely love and I hold to is what's said about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, that he is the one who carries the universe along to its intended destination. That there is a goal of history and that Jesus is sovereignly carrying everything along to its destination. And, and that, that gets more and more beautiful and more and more complex and complicated as we discover more and more about God's creation. I mean, to think that you look up into the night sky, Dr. White is my hero. He is my father in the faith. He is my mentor. If you'd have told me 20 years ago as a young man, a boy, that I'd be pastoring a church alongside Dr. James White, I would have called you a liar. There's no way that could take place, but that's what's going on. Pastor White is a solid man of God. He believes what he says. He's the same man you see out in public in debating and defending the faith as he is behind closed doors, only he's actually much more nerdy. <laughs> he's a total nerd. 
who wears really strange clothes. It looks like a rainbow threw up on Dr. White every day. I have some coogees that he's given to me. Um, I'm, I'm, my plan is to put them into like shadow boxes and preserve them so that my grandchildren can make a lot of money at pawn shops, like when he's several generations down the road or something. I guess maybe people will like him. I don't know. Um, but he's, he's a real nerd, and uh, we spent a lot of time together. And one night, uh, we were outside hanging out. It was late at night, and we were looking up to the sky, and you just have to let James go he'll just start talking about the sky. And he's sort of like a little amateur astronomer and knows so many details. So point out every star and he's like, you want to know the story about that thing right there? Do you know what you're looking at right there? Do you know what this is right there? And he knows like the location of black holes and different parts. It's like, I don't know how you know all that. And that's crazy. But he'll, he'll describe all these different aspects of even the Milky Way and what we have near us and this star and how large it is and all these things. And he'll go on and on about just the Milky Way. And he'll talk about this galaxy that's coming on this course towards us and all these things. And it's amazing because when you consider the complexities of our own galaxy and just what it would take to get to the end of it and how much is actually there and the size of our star in comparison to other stars and all the amazing intricacies of our own galaxy and how it is just in this perfect rhythm and everything is there doing what it's supposed to do. If you think about that, and there are apparently hundreds of billions of these galaxies. And scripture says that Jesus is carrying everything along to its intended destination. The earth is in its orbit. The earth and moon are doing what they're doing right now, controlling the tides and everything happening down to the deeps. Everything in the hands of a sovereign God. That's the picture or portrait that Scripture gives to us about God, is that He is that kind of sovereign. That there is nothing that happens in this universe apart from His will and His decree. He is sovereign, not kind of sovereign. He is fully sovereign. He does according to His will in heaven and on earth. And so Scripture, again, there's no way to avoid proof texting in a conference like this and doing topical studies But it's important for us to talk about the portrait that God gives to us in His own Word, which is the standard and the foundation. It's what we are to believe about God. God says in His Word that He is sovereign. Isaiah 46.10. Go there. Isaiah 46.10. Now as you get there, in terms of building context, there is this amazing section that if you don't know it, I encourage you to get to know it. Put it into your heart. It's going to give you that anchor and that foundation in the most difficult times of your life, whether you're dealing with death or tragedy or your own personal sanctification. This is a section of Scripture you need to know well. Isaiah 40 through 46, this is where God lays the smack down on the idols of man. It is just over and over and over. He is the only God. He's the true God. And then he mocks. Yes, he mocks. God uses a serrated edge a lot through Scripture. And he mocks the idols of men. At one point he talks about the man who actually takes wood and he builds an idol out of the wood. Who made the tree? God made the tree. He takes the wood, the thing that God made. He makes an idol with some of the wood and then he uses the rest of the wood to cook his food and then he thanks the idol for the food. He's mocking them. And then in another section here, he makes fun of 
He makes fun of the person who takes what God made, the Creator made, to fashion an idol, and they work really hard as a craftsman using the gifts that God has given to them to build this idol out of the things that God made to build the idol, and they build the idol, and there it is, and it doesn't move. It just sits there. And the mockery about, and you're going to worship that? The idol that can't see, can't speak, can't hear, can't move, has no creative power, has no power. I made the things that went into that thing, and you're going to worship that bootleg God over me? That's the point. And then God begins to describe the challenge that he has for the idols of men. And this is, by the way, so powerful. It's one of the things I love about the Christian worldview, that God can say these things. He challenges the idols here in this section by saying to them, okay, idol, have your idols tell you the future. Which is a real challenge for idols. Because they don't do a lot of talking, right? And so that's what God is saying. Okay, have your gods tell you the future. And it's one of the amazing, glorious things about the Christian worldview is that in Scripture, God actually stakes whether somebody is a real prophet from God or a true prophet on the, on the basis of the fact that God will give us prophecy. He'll predict the future, tell the future before it happens, and it is 100% perfect fulfillment. And God says in Deuteronomy 18, if a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not follow or come to pass, that's how you know they're a false prophet. In other words, this book, find a single false prophecy in it. And according to God's own standard, it's false. Think about that claim, how bold that is. And that's what God says to the idols of men. He says, go ahead and have your idols tell you the future before it happens. They can't do it. And God does it over and over and over and over again in his word. The details of Jesus as Messiah are so compelling and so amazing. His person, his work, his location, how he's going to die, why he's coming. All those things are long before Jesus comes even down to the when of the Messiah, when he's coming into history is prophesied hundreds of years before it takes place. God says he can tell you the future before it happens. And why? Because he's the one that carries the universe along to its intended destination. He is the sovereign. He does according to his will in heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand and say, what have you done? That's the God that we're talking about. And God says to the idols of men, tell me the future. Can't do it, can you? But he says something even more amazing. And this is water for your soul. He says, have your idols tell you the past. And why? Why did it take place like that? You see, God can't just tell you the events of the future. He's not just going to tell you what is to come because he's sovereign over it. He says that he can tell you the why of everything that's happened in the past. In other words, there is a purpose, God's purpose, in every event in human history, he has a purpose. It has meaning. It is not just time and chance acting on matter. It is not just sound and fury signifying nothing. It is purposeful. It is meaningful. God can tell you the future and the past and why it took place the way that it did. Idols can't do that because idols are nothing. And idols have no control, no purpose, no creative power. That's the God that we're talking about. And in Isaiah 46, there's the context. And in Isaiah 46, verse 10, well, let's start in verse 8. 
God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That section is glorious. That's a sovereign God. You and I pay no attention to the birds of prey and all their dealings and what they need to do, what they do to survive. God's the one who controls even the birds of prey. Every detail of this universe is sovereignly guided by God. He has a purpose that cannot be thwarted. He declares the end from the beginning, which means that there is a purpose, God's purpose, a holy and just and good purpose in every event in human history. And that is a distinct God from the religions of men and the gods of men. There is no other religious text that comes close to that. All their gods exist in a continuum of gods. Mommy gods, daddy gods, baby gods, right? You have mommy god, daddy god creating a baby god. Sobek, the crocodile god. And people worship this. These gods are at war with each other. They're capricious. They're unjust. They're dealing with their own sin and their own problems. Even the god of Joseph Smith. I've I've talked a lot about Joseph Smith. But even the god of Joseph Smith was once a man as we are now. With a body as tangible as a man's. If you were to see him now, you would seem like a man in form like yourselves. He was once a a man on the planet just like this. He became a God the same way you become gods yourselves through learning and growing and failing and sinning. He doesn't even know everything. He had to grow in his knowledge. That's not the God of the Bible. Call him Heavenly Father. He's not. And there's a distinction between the sovereign God that Scripture gives to us and the gods of men. In Daniel chapter 4, 35, I've already done some quoting from it. You can just record that verse down about God who does according to his will in heaven and on earth and no one can thwart his purposes. In Job 42, 2, go there. It's the summary of that massive conflict. My wife is weird. Um, her favorite book in the Bible always has been is Job, which I think is weird. Because it's, I think, one of the most complicated, complex books in the Bible, personally. She thinks, you know, I'm not, I'm not a theologian like, like you, babe. Uh, and I'm like, well, if you love that book like you do, I think you are on a much higher level than me. Because it is a deep and complex book. But you know the conflict, the story there in the book of Job, right? The bad advice and the, you know, the wrong things that are said and all the difficulties and all the tragedies happening in Job's life and all these things. And he finally wants to have an interview with God. Right? It gets to the point where he's finally broken. He wants to have an interview with God. And of course, you know the end of that, right? After he tries to speak out and God says, okay, I'll ask you some questions first and then we'll get to yours. And God basically challenges him on what? His sovereignty, his rule. You're a creature on God. You couldn't possibly understand how I run things, right? Can you understand even this little thing? I'm the one who rules over that. And Job ends with what? His hand over his mouth. I've spoken too soon. I can't contend with the Almighty, but what is ultimately the summary 
of this story. It's here in Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's the biblical God. That's the biblical God. He is much bigger than us, much bigger than our conceptions of Him as creatures. He is far beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but make no mistake about it, Scripture teaches that God is fully sovereign in control of all things and nobody can thwart His purposes. And that brings us to the next stage of this question about grace. If that's who God is, if He's the only God, the holy God, the just God that we've offended, and He's the sovereign God, how does He save sinful humanity? So we have to ask the question, again, with the foundation in front of us laying that down, that's the rock that we stand on, this is that word of truth, we have to ask the question, well, what's our condition? How, how do we make our back to a place of reconciliation and peace with God? What is grace according to God's own word and His own definition? We know that He's sovereign, we know that we've offended Him, we know that we're sinners, but what kind of sinners are we? So we're laying down the foundation of the sovereignty of God. And number two, we have to ask the question about how dead are we in our sin? We have to ask about our condition. How bad is it? Now, I'd love to do an entire message right now on total depravity or total inability, but we have to at least talk about what does the Scripture say about our condition? Is it like the religions of men say that we're sort of sick, you know, tainted, you know, bad, we do wrong things, make wrong choices, but we, you know, we're basically good. Is it that, you know, we're sinners but not so bad? Or is it like the Scriptures say over and over and over that we are dead in our sins and trespasses? That we do not seek for God? That we are not righteous, no, not one? Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to do some more a little later in detail, but what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus is he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And he says this, you were by nature By nature, children of wrath. That speaks to their nature. Their nature. Your spiritual condition before God was you were a child of wrath. Not a child of God. You hear people obviously tell that story a lot. It's not something that's popular in reform circles. Like everyone's a child of God. Nope, not true. Not according to scripture. You've got children of God through adoption because of the gospel. And you've got children of wrath. You are a child of wrath before you come to have peace with God through Christ. Your sin is such that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. And it is appropriate to ask the question, what can a dead man do? What can a dead man do? And the answer is nothing. All you can do is stinketh. Right? All you can do is stink. All you can do is rot. You can't move. You're not capable of it. You are dead. You can't respond. You are dead. And so what Scripture says is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins by nature, children of wrath. That's the condition. In John 8, 34, Jesus talks about our condition, and he says, whoever commits sin is a what? Slave of sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Where did we ever get the idea that we're free? Obviously, the conflict that has to get addressed at times is the conflict of the question of free will. Are our wills free? We're not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but yes, you're a creature. You're making willing choices, but your choices are choices that are actually operating based upon your will. 
right? If your will is fallen, if you are by nature a child of wrath, then the choices that you're making are going to be child of wrath choices, right? They're your choices. You're doing what you want to do. God's not putting a gun to your head saying, you be bad, you be sinful. You're doing what you want. And God is many times restraining the evil and the intentions of men through his sovereign power and his will. And we are not as bad as we could be because God is restraining us, I believe. However, the choices that we make as fallen people are fallen choices because the nature is fallen. Dead spiritual men and women do dead spiritual things. We are not free. We are enslaved to our sin. Jesus said it. He's the Lord of glory. He is the truth. He says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And that's why that beautiful promise in our context tonight about assurance is so beautiful. He says, but if the Son sets you free, you should be free indeed. Bad news, good news. You are a slave. You need to be set free by another. The Son is the one who sets you free. You do not set yourselves free. He sets you free. And that's the glory of His grace. In John 6, we're going to do some more of this in a minute in context, but Jesus actually talks about the ability of fallen men and women. He says in John 6, no man is able to come to me. No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up. There's the ability. You don't have it. You're a slave to sin. You don't have the ability to come to Jesus apart from the Father drawing you. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. And of course, that catena of verses in Romans chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul is trying to bring the point home that Jew and Gentile, all from Adam, all fallen, all condemned in Adam, all have the same problem. You're not special because you're part of God's covenant people, the Jews. You are like the Gentiles. You are fallen apart from God's grace. You are, according to Paul, not righteous, not good, non-God-seeking. You do not seek for God. Nobody does. Nobody seeks for God, Scripture says. Nobody is good. Nobody is righteous. The poison of asps is under their lips. And it says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a universal indictment upon all of humanity. Men and women, boys and girls, and Jew and Gentile. This is the condition of every person. So if that's our condition, if we're not able, if we're slaves... If we're dead in our sins and trespasses, if we do not seek for God, if we have no fear of God, if we're not righteous and not good, then what's the answer? How does a person go from that to a place of reconciliation and peace with God? And Scripture is clear. It is abundantly clear. It is God in His sovereign will and His sovereign grace that brings salvation to sinners. It is not you. It is not me. It is not your upbringing your efforts, your righteousness, your good deeds. It is the sovereign grace of God that chose you, the sovereign grace of God that saves you, the sovereign grace of God that keeps you. God is sovereign and we are dead. God is sovereign and we are dead. So what does the scripture say? And you, we could do this for two months of conferences to just pour over this truth and examine it 
And I'd love to do that, but tonight we have limited time. And so let's talk about just a few sections. I want to do this in terms of context. And one of the things I've learned, I'm talking about James a lot tonight, I guess. One of the things that he's taught me from a young age, when I first met him when I was 18 years old, one of the things that he taught me is that we have to be consistent in our handling of the Word of God. We can't use, and this is something that has blessed my life, we can't use different standards for different texts. You know what I mean? Like we get to the deity of Christ through a certain hermeneutic by letting the text speak and let, let the text speak. Let God do the speaking. Let, let's do it in context. Let's think about the words. Let's think about the grammar. Let's think about how this connects to this verse. Let's, let's do our homework and make sure that it's God speaking and not us putting things into the text. We need to let the text speak and let it text it speak in full and let the argument run to the end. We need to follow Jesus' arguments. We need to follow Paul's argument to the conclusion. We can't just go to God's word and rip verses out of context and just proof text people to death. We need to actually say, no, what is Jesus teaching there in a full discourse? And so let's go to one that is exactly where we need to land on this question of how a person is graciously brought to God. So let's go to the gospel according to John chapter 6. And let's run through what Jesus teaches about God's sovereign grace and power and salvation. If we want to learn about God's grace and our assurance, there's no better place to go than the Lord Jesus when He speaks about it. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not, shall never thirst. Now let's just stop there for a minute. Another amazing thing about the biblical worldview, in contrast to the religions of men, is that God says in His Word that He cannot lie. God cannot lie. It is against God's own character and nature to lie. By the way, in terms of Christian ethics, and we talk about Christian ethical systems, we don't say you shouldn't lie or you ought not lie because there's some law standing above God's head, right? Like God's yielding to this law that's above him, and he's not lying because the rule is out there he's trying to obey. No, that's not why, that's not why we don't lie as believers in terms of an ethical system. We don't lie because we're made in His image and it is against God's own holy character to lie. And He is eternal. And He is transcendent. God doesn't lie, cannot lie, and that's why we as His image bearers are not to lie. And here's a moment where you have God in the flesh, the incarnate one, walking among His people. And what does He say? Here's your assurance. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so brother or sister, have you come to him? Do you believe in him? Do you trust in him? Then what is his promise to you that cannot be broken? You're never going to hunger. You're never going to be thirsty. Even on your worst days. Even on your worst days where you feel, where you feel like God is far off. Right? Right? You feel like these promises couldn't possibly be true. His promises are true. They are certain. He cannot lie. And he says, you're never going to thirst. You're never going to go hungry. 
Not ever. And so it gets better. <laughs> we can stop there and say, what a great conference, right? Let's, walk, let's finish up there because that's enough. But here he goes on. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He's talking to people now who are in his midst, who are hanging out. They see Jesus. They see the miracles. They see his life. And yet they don't really believe. They don't believe in him, even though they're seeing all these amazing things. They're seeing his life. They're seeing his character. They're seeing the miracles. And he says, you've seen me. And yet you, you do not believe. So there's a group of people in front of Jesus right now. They are not believing in Jesus. And here's... What he says about their unbelief, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. On the last day, you've seen me, you don't believe. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And it, he says, I have come down from heaven. Here is my mission. This is my purpose. The Father sent me for this very purpose. Do you think Jesus could fail in what the Father sent him for? Do you think that? He could never fail. And he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of whom has sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I should lose nothing. You don't believe, but I'm going to lose none that the Father has given to me. Ever. I will not lose them. And I will raise them up on the last day. You will never be lost by Jesus. You will be raised up on the last day. But we need to pay very close attention to something. He is talking to people who don't believe in him. And he's saying to them, The Father's given to me a people. He has given to me a people, and they will all, every one of them, come to me, and I will never lose them, and I will raise them up. So that is a sovereign God. He's sovereign over the decisions that people are making. He's sovereign, listen, over the faith of the people in front of him. They are sinners. They are hostile to God, just like every other Gentile. They don't believe in Jesus right there, and he says to their unbelief, all that the Father has given to me will come. It's guaranteed. It's fully assured. It's going to happen. And I will never lose them. And I'll raise them up. That's the promise you and I have in Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus, you'll never thirst. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're never going to go hungry. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're never going to be lost. If you're trusting in Jesus, you will be raised up. That is God's magnificent, incomprehensible, marvelous grace. That's the grace we're talking about. And notice something. It is a grace that goes beyond the category of their participation or cooperation. Because, ready? These people who were given to Jesus were obviously given to Jesus before all of this because he says that he arrived and came from heaven to get the ones the Father gave to him. So there is a people that has been given to, God, to Jesus by the Father to never lose. That is a sovereign grace. That is a sovereign will of God. It is a sovereign choice of God. And it's something that goes beyond the category of their decisions and their cooperation. And so Jesus goes on. He says, 
For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on forever life in God. That's the kind of life that Jesus gives. So here's the challenge, right? You look at a text like this, you say, okay, obviously God has a sovereign will. God is sovereign over this salvation thing. That's a grace and a power and a sovereignty that is mind-blowing. But Jesus actually says, here's what it is. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. So here's a challenge to you. Do you trust Him? Do you believe in Him? Because that's the challenge, really. It's not the question of who's the elect. Are you the elect? Is He the elect? Where's the elect? Right? Is there a certain shade of the elect I'm looking for? Are they glowing or something? Like, where are the elect? That's not how this works. Here's what Jesus says is the identifying mark. How do you know? Like, how can you have that assurance? You're the believing one. It's that active, ongoing trust in Jesus. Right? Not the mere profession or past tense, I believed in Christ back there. Just mere profession. It is a believing in Christ, a trusting in Christ. If you are in this room right now and you are trusting in Christ and in Him alone for forgiveness and salvation, you are never going to be lost. You have eternal life. That is a word from God. I can say it with full authority and full assurance because they're not my words, they're His. They're not my words, they're His. You see, we do have the authority as Christians, as pastors, to make declarations of certainty, of authority. And those declarations of certainty are based upon the authority of God's word, not my promises. They're his promises. And then Jesus goes on here after he promises that those who trust in him will have eternal life. He goes on and it says, the Jews grumbled about him. They were gungus mooing. Weird word. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Think about that for a moment, how powerful that is, how potent it is to the religions of men. No one can come to me. No ability. You don't have it. Nobody you're going to cross paths with has the ability to come to God. They don't have it. They can't get it. They won't conjure it up. It doesn't exist. They have no ability because, he says later, they are slaves to sin. They have no ability. They don't desire God. They don't want God. They're at war with God. They are children of wrath. They are enemies of God. They are haters of God. That's what Scripture says. No one is able to come to me. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. Unless, and here's that sovereignty of God over the deadness of man and sin. He says, unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. Now, people that love to counterfeit Christianity and ape Christianity will go, oh, yeah, absolutely. You need that gracious drawing of the Father. We're not arguing with that. Yeah, people are sinful. People are, you know, yeah, they're dead in their sins and all that. And yeah, no one is able. Sure. I mean, you know, it doesn't really work on my theology. However, you do need the drawing of the Father. We'll admit that. No one is able. You've got to be drawn by the Father. It goes on. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And here it is, ready? And I will raise him up. He raises up the one the Father draws. What did he just promise in the very same text? Follow the argument of Jesus. What did he just promise? That he gives eternal life and he'll never lose the one the Father have given to him, has given to him and he will raise them up. Who does he raise up? The ones the Father has given, the ones he'll never lose, right? And he says here in the text, I will raise up the one the Father draws, the one that couldn't come. So you have a room of Christians right now. Are you trusting in Christ? Two of you have your heads bobbing. Okay, all right. We might have to have a new message for this conference. All right. Are you trusting in Christ? How did you get there? You see, we know our own stories, right? Like, you know the particulars. Maybe you were sitting on your grandfather's lap at a really young age, and he told you about your sin and the holiness of God. He talked about Christ. Maybe that's where God opened your eyes. You know your story. Maybe you were living a life of sin and rebellion, and you came to Christ later on in life. Someone gave you a tract, or they sat down, and they presented the gospel. Whatever your story is, you have a story. There was a means by which God used particular people or events to draw you to himself. But actually, let's go to what Jesus said here. He says this, you weren't able to come and it was the Father who drew you. So you're here now trusting in Jesus, not really because of you, right? You're here trusting in Jesus right now, and you have assurance because of a sovereign God who loved you before you were, and he brought you to himself. And here's, here's the point in terms of grace and assurance. Jesus doesn't just say the Father draws, and then, you know, you're in this we're hooked up and you're in this relationship. He says, no, the Father draws you. I'm going to raise you up. That's a glorious hope and a glorious promise is that you and I have the glory of heaven for all eternity with God and the assurance, the guarantee that cannot ever be broken that you and I will be raised up on the last day. That's the hope that we have. And it's not based upon your feelings. It's not based upon your good days and your bad days. It wasn't based upon that to get into this relationship with Christ, and it's not going to ever be based upon that. It is a sovereign work of God over dead, fallen, sinful people. That's the powerful, sovereign grace of God. But it goes on. If you move over to John chapter 10, another section or discourse from the Lord Jesus. This is to my soul where I go for hope and joy in God. I told you that John is my favorite gospel, but here's another section where Jesus describes... His people and the sovereign grace of God. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 7, the Lord Jesus tells us more. It says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. He knows who his sheep are. 
He just said that he came down from heaven not to do his will, but the Father's will, that he should lose none of all that the Father has given to him. You don't believe, but all that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will raise them up. And now here he says, I'm the good shepherd. He says, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I know who they are. He says, and this is beautiful. I'm verse 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And this I can't comprehend. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I, I, I have to readily admit, I confess, I don't, I can't comprehend that. Because if you do a study of the relationship of the persons of the Trinity and what Scripture tells us about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you, you have to be struck with the awe. In, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And archaean halagos, as far back as you want to go with no stopping point, the Word was already there. And the Word was proston deon, with God, toward God, in this intimate relationship with the Father, Father and Son. And He is God. So Jesus knows the Father, is in this relationship with the Father that is an eternal relationship. Forever ago, there was never a time, if you can even use that concept, where the Father, Son, and Spirit were not in a holy, beautiful, delightful fellowship and relationship in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says here, I know them, and they know me like I know the Father and the Father knows me, I don't get it. I can't wait to understand a little bit better, but that is a love and a devotion to me and to you as God's children that I cannot even begin to comprehend, and I kind of like it. I kind of like it, because there's more to discover in the beauty of His love and His grace. But He goes on, and watch what He says here. He says, I know who they are, and they know me. And then he says, watch this, he says this in verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So he's there, he's with the Jews, right? He's got his sheep there. And he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And watch the guarantee here. He says this, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I know who they are, and I've got other ones, and I'm going to get them. And they are coming, and they will listen. How's that hope, by the way, for evangelism? People always mock Calvinism, and they'll always say, like, well, you know, if it's God is sovereign, you know, if he predestines and all, uh, then why are you doing evangelism? I, my question to you is, why are you doing evangelism? Why are you doing evangelism? Because if you think God's purposes can be thwarted by the creature... Why are you doing evangelism? You think God's already done everything he can and he could try his very best and try to save and desire to save and Jesus can die for their sins and they can go to hell forever? I preach a gospel because I have a sovereign God who saves perfectly. I preach a gospel knowing that sometimes I proclaim repentance and faith and the glory of Christ and his kingship and authority and sometimes nothing happens and God will judge them on the last day that even when messengers of grace come with a message of peace and life and forgiveness, they so hate God that they continue in their sin and rebellion and they love it. And sometimes you preach that gospel 
And God comes into a dead person's life and he raises them to life. He opens their eyes. They see Jesus and they fall in love with Jesus and they trust in Jesus. That's a powerful gospel. When you know that you're preaching to people that this could be God's elect, I'm going to preach the gospel. It's not up to me to be, you know, the best at this. I don't have to be perfect at this. I can make mistakes. I'm just going to preach the gospel and the truth. You know what God's going to do? He's going to bring the increase. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. That's what he does. My job is simply to preach the truth. And God saves. So here's the thing. I know when I go out to preach the gospel, it's a 100% successful mission. Every single time. It's, it's success every time. I preach the gospel. Nobody turned to Christ that night. That was a huge success. Why? Because God's the sovereign over the whole situation. Jesus has his sheep. He's going to bring them. It's guaranteed success. They are coming. And here's what happens next. It says, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. There is that sovereignty again. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these aren't the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Right. And he says this, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. You got to love that. You just have to love that. How many times do you have to say it? Right? I mean, the disciples are saying it. Everybody's saying it. Like, how many times do you have to say it? And don't you love it? They're saying, like, if you're the Messiah, say it to us. And Jesus says, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And here it is. He answers their unbelief. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Here's the reason you don't believe you don't belong to me. You're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. You don't trust me because you are not of my sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You have that picture of like you are in the middle of Jesus' hand and the middle of the Father's hand, and you've got to go through this double-fisted grip of the Father and the Son, the sovereign God who holds Saturn in orbit. You're not getting it out of that hand. That's the point. Sovereignty. He has a people. He's never going to lose them. And he responds to their unbelief by saying, you don't believe because you're not mine. Mine are going to come. Why? It's the Father's will. I'm never going to lose them. I'll give them eternal life. I'm going to raise them up. You don't believe because you're not mine. That is the biblical definition of God's sovereignty over salvation and the biblical view of his grace and salvation because the truth is no one is able. You weren't and they aren't. You weren't, and they aren't. And yet here you are, believing in Christ, 
How did that take place? Because of the sovereign grace of God. So when you talk about grace and assurance, find your anchor there. That's where our hope is. And that's what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and grace in salvation. That's the power of it. Now, I'd love to do this all night. I really would. But let's go to one more text. One more text. Ephesians. This is the Apostle Paul. And the reason why I want to land here is because the Apostle Paul here defines what biblical grace is. And interestingly, he does it in the same way Jesus does in his discourse in John 6 and John 10. He starts with the sovereign grace of God and choice of God of a people in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, you're familiar with the text hopefully. In Ephesians chapter 1, after the introduction, grace and peace, in verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him... When? Before the foundation of the world. This isn't an ongoing activity where God is like trying to like respond to man and the things that are going on in the world and trying to see like, well, how can I fix this problem? And how can I do this and work this out? This says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is a choice of God. It's his work. He's done this. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that... We should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to what? Our works, our good deeds, our cooperation, our power. It says what? According to the purpose of His will. According to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious, what? Grace. Why did God do this? You and I are going to ask that question a lot, I think, for all eternity. Right? Why me? If you haven't asked it yet, I think you need to spend more time pouring over the sin that God has rescued you over. But that question, why? Why? Why me? Why would you save someone like me? Like when you think about God's holiness, His power, His character, and you think about what a wreck you are, maybe, I'm, maybe it's just me. You should ask, like, well, why would you save someone like me? And the answer is right here. It's according to His purpose, all to the praise of His glorious grace. And how is that defined here? It's just a few verses in. How is it defined? It's defined like this. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before Him and love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. He did this, and the answer is why, according to the purpose of His own will, all to the praise of His glorious grace. He wants people to magnify His love and His grace. This salvation is a grace grace, a real grace. It is unmerited absolutely and completely from beginning to end. And this is something that took place before the world was even laid down. This is the plan of God, His purpose to bring Him praise. Now, man doesn't like that. 
Sinful humanity doesn't like the idea of God doing things for his glory and his praise. But if you know him, there's no greater thing, <laughs> right? When you know him and you know his character and how lovely he is and amazing he is, the fact that he does these things to glorify his name and to glorify his grace is something that excites you towards worship. Amen? I hope so. When you think about that God saved me so that I would praise his glorious grace for all eternity, that satisfies my soul because that's my hope. It was his grace that brought me. Now, we can go on here through this, but I want you to see how Paul lands after this. Now, again, we need to remember that the chapter and verse subdivisions are, are a modern innovation, right? So this is Paul writing a letter to Ephesus, and this is, you know, one discussion. It's all together, so we need to be cautious about breaking it up. Like, that was chapter one, now we're into a whole different thing, chapter two. No, it's the same, it's the same thing. It's one conversation. And in chapter two, verse one, here's how Paul defines biblical grace and salvation. He says this, verse one, and you were dead. Who's he talking to? Christians professing believers in the church. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. There's sanctification for you. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's bad. That is bad. That's worse than most pulpits are willing to, that's willing to say today. Right? We don't want to talk about sin in that way. You're dead. You are a child of wrath. You hate God. You're an enemy of God. You're a slave. Most pulpits in America are afraid to even say that across the pulpits. But this is how the gospel comes. Here's how the description comes. You were once like this. This is really where you were. You were like this. And here's the hope. But God, and this is where biblical grace and salvation is defined, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's his definition. So here, here's what Paul says according to his story, his teaching about biblical grace. We're talking about grace and assurance here at this conference. Here's the story according to Paul. Ephesians 1, he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he did it. You were dead. You were a child of wrath. You were a rebel. And he says what? But God made you alive. By grace you've been saved. A dead person in a tomb spiritually. You didn't bring yourself out. You didn't work it out. You didn't climb to God. You were dead. And it was God who made you alive. By grace you've been saved. That is the kind of grace that Scripture is talking about. I spent time as your brother and as a minister of the gospel trying to lay the foundation. It's Scripture that is the foundation. Amen? That's the starting point. If you want to talk about grace and assurance, you've got to go to what God says. That's how he defines it. Rome doesn't do that. 
They've perverted the gospel, distorted the gospel. They don't talk about grace in that way. They talk about cooperation. They talk about infusion. All the religions of men, they don't talk about grace in this way. They talk about, no, you've got to make your way. You've got to climb. You've got to polish yourself up. You've got to clean yourself up. You've got to wash off those things. You've got to do better things. You've got to become in yourself acceptable to God. Scripture says, it's not like that. You're dead. You're dead. You're a rebel. You are a child of wrath, dead. And it is God who raises the dead. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up, verse 6, with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for, and everyone knows this one, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that... No one may boast. God did this so that you don't boast, so that you glory in Him, so that you worship Him. For eternity, we're going to be worshiping God, not talking about ourselves. How'd you get here? Oh, well, I did this thing, and I did these ministries, and I did this work. Nope, that doesn't work. Nope. No, all of us are going to be boasting in the fact that we're hiding in Jesus, that we have His righteousness. I'm here because He loved me, and He chose me, and He saved me. That's why I'm with God for all of eternity. Nothing's ever going to change about that. There's, that's the story. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And by the way, it gets even better than I just said. By grace you've been saved. What kind of grace is that? You were dead. God made you alive. That's the by grace part. You were dead. God made you alive. He did that. You were dead. You had nothing to offer. He made you alive. By grace you've been saved through faith. And that, what's that? The grace and the faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Did you ever catch that? The grace and the faith are gift. So even my ability to trust in Jesus is a gift of God. Because I wouldn't have done it on my own. I wouldn't have believed even that faith is a gift of God. And by the way, it is not. It is not the only place that Scripture teaches this. You know that. Philippians 1.29, Paul apparently loved the teaching he said, it has been gifted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. You see, we tend to see a verse like that, and we're like, I'll take the first, leave the second, thank you, right? Uh, it's been gifted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. We're like, oh, okay, that doesn't seem so much like a gift, but Paul's saying, here are two gifts from God. It's got wrapping paper and bows on it. They're both gifts from God. Faith in Jesus and to suffer for his sake, they're both gifts from God. But did you notice that? The suffering is a gift, and the faith in Christ is a gift from God. Scripture teaches you're dead. God makes you alive. God grants faith, and God grants repentance. 2 Timothy 2.24-25 says that the Lord serve him must be patient when wronged, able to teach in humility, correcting those who oppose themselves, if God perhaps may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's grace. That's a sovereign God. And that's the assurance that we have to hold on to, is that this isn't in your hands. And so I mentioned a moment ago, this is our hope in evangelism, is that Christ's sheep will hear his voice. So you and I preach the gospel, because what does Paul say in Romans 1.16? It's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation. Dunamis. It's the same word we use to get the word dynamite, right? Like it's, it's the power of God, the Boom, right? God, through His Holy Spirit, 
empowers the message and preaching of the gospel to bring it into a dead person's life to raise them to newness of life. That is the confidence I have in evangelism as I preach the truth. I don't need to take off the edges. I don't need to dumb down the message. I preach the truth. I don't care if you like it. People have said to us, and I'll just, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this. People have said to us, you know, your approach to the issue of ending abortion in the nation is not practical. I heard a very famous pastor recently. It broke my heart last week when I heard him say it. He was talking about people who want to go to the legislature and be prophetic and preach God's word and to demand abolition and criminalization to call it murder. He said, that's just not how politics works. No, maybe you're right. Maybe that's not how politics works, but that is how prophetic ministry works. That is how the prophets speak. That's how pastors and Christians are supposed to speak, not do things that are practical, right? Like, I think this is pragmatic. This is the best way to go. No, we don't have to do that. If you believe in a sovereign God and you believe in the power of His work and the work of His Holy Spirit, you can preach the truth unadulterated. And maybe in our day, there is so much darkness around us because we think we can manipulate people into the kingdom. We think that we can come up with really fancy arguments and ways to dumb down the gospel so we can get as many people to come as possible. Did you ever see that in Jesus' ministry, He was willing to whittle massive crowds down to almost nothing? You see, Jesus has a moment in his ministry, I assume many, many moments, where he had the opportunity to start a megachurch movement, right? It's getting amazing now. We should get a big building now and get all kinds of projects and children's things and all those different things. Let's, let's get bouncing things outside the church. Let's have amazing programs. Jesus, and look at the crowds. Jesus turns around and says to people, what? If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and he names all your favorites, father, mother, everybody, you're not worthy to be my disciple. He says, you must come to him to die. Take up your cross. Do the death march. Come die. Consider the cost before you come. Don't be like a fool. Don't be like a fool. Don't come to me and not understand. Jesus says, come to die or don't come. That's the message that Christ preached and the apostles preached that turned the whole world upside down. And we wonder what's wrong with us. We have the same God the same gospel, and the same spirit. What's wrong with us? God is sovereign. He can wake this entire nation up. He can take a whole nation that is dead and he can raise them to life. But he does it through the proclamation of the truth and the gospel. And he has his sheep. He can raise them from the dead. We need to preach the truth in an unadulterated way. And by the way, final word here. We'll talk more about this tomorrow. Everything I've spoken about tonight from the word of God is our hope in sanctification and glory. Because the promise was not that Jesus was going to come and punch a ticket for people. It was that he was going to save and save them perfectly to the end and never lose them. It's God's purpose. I'll finish with the rest of the verse in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, always quoted. By grace, grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not according to works, lest any man should boast. But it goes on, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has already prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's sovereign over the beginning. He's sovereign over the middle. He's sovereign over the end. Your hope and my hope is in that sovereign grace to keep us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this grace and the assurance that we have in Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.